and thanks for joining me for another episode of Behind the Mic. This is a vent music podcast series hosted by me, Freddie Cocker. Each pod, I check in with artists across different music scenes in the UK and beyond. We talk all about their musical journeys, their artistry, and most importantly of all, the person behind the mic. I've interviewed Droz on Behind the Mic, so it's only right I interview one of the main men from the band he used to be in, Beach for Tiger. So on today's show, I'm interviewing Pete from that band who plays bass, as well as in Great Friends event, Rayowa. In this Behind the Mic episode, we talk about the journey of Beach for Tiger, who've been going for over a decade in the industry. We talk about the realities of being a working musician, how COVID has impacted the industry, as well as Pete's mental health and perfectionism culture in music production. We also talk about how COVID has triggered a wave of health anxiety in Pete, which has severely impacted his physical and mental health at times. The anxiety of going back to a new normal, in quotation marks, whatever that is, and the pressure people feel to live life to the fullest post-lockdown. So get yourself comfy and have a listen as I go behind the mic with Pete from Beach for Tiger. Pete, welcome to Behind the Mic, mate. Thank you so much for coming on and letting me go behind the mic with you and taking out some precious time from your Sunday to talk to me. I know this is going to be a really good pod because our chat off air was basically just one big music nerd chat. How are you, bro? How are you coping with everything going on in the world right now? Mate, thank you so much for having me on today. And I am doing well. And you know what? I seemingly am coping quite well at the moment because it seems we are gradually being allowed out of this little apocalyptic prison that we have been in for the last 18 months and things seem to be returned to well some sort of normality if yeah. you will it's definitely a quotation yeah. marks normal isn't it yeah definitely obviously things have drastically changed since this pandemic but i tell you what i'm a little bit groggy and tired today because i had a gig last night my god now that is a step in the right direction would you say so a hundred percent mate i've got so many rescheduled postponed gig tickets for basically the next 10 months so yeah amazing stuff but yeah i like the fact that i'm actually in a venue doing things is pretty mad but it's weird because it's a sit down gig obviously so i'm doing a dj gig and people sitting down eating their nachos and i'm dropping the bangers which is you know a little bit absurd but yeah. still it's good fun it's if good you can fun. get them it's out of their seat back on the then yeah. you're loving it <laughs> to be fair people are kind of like ski sitting they're like oh i want to dance i want to dance but you know i'm really tantalizing them with the jams i'm like you want to stand up don't you you want to break the law right now don't you but they literally cannot because the bar staff would be quite annoyed but anywho i i ramble i ramble I ramble so in a nutshell i am coping quite well because things are getting back to somewhat of a normality Amazing, mate. Let's pray and hope that continues as uh, a time of recording this goes on. So what I want to say is, is like your journey shares a lot of similarities to mine when it comes to health anxiety, particularly yes. through COVID. That's why I was really keen to get you on. So shall we just start the show, mate? Mate, let's get involved. Let's dip our toes into the pool of thought. <laughs> Let's start behind the mic, as we always do, mate, by talking about your musical journey. So I ask all my special guests this question. So tell me and the listeners how your love affair with music began, the mental health impact it had on you, you know, some of the artists that you listened to growing up and when you first started singing or playing instruments. 
Ah, my infatuation with the art that is music. My God, what a what a long road it has been indeed. Well, I mean, I've been playing the guitar for, what, 17, 18 years now, since the age of about seven or eight. So I suppose the journey started in an unorthodox way because my brother, who I play in bands with now, he plays drums and stuff. He started playing drums at the age of 10. And as a little bratty kid, I essentially got envious over him because he was playing an instrument. I was like, I want to play an instrument too. Where? <laughs> Where? Oh my God, my brother's so cool. He's playing the drums. Where? We were in this local music academy right down the road from us. My mum was like, why don't you play the guitar? And I was like, okay. I think it was in and amongst some sort of a hissy fit of some sort. I was like, yeah, I want to play. And then simply out of sibling envy, I just started playing the guitar. And lo and behold, I became completely infatuated with the world of music right from the off, really. Because my guitar teacher was this cool dude. He had these, like, leather boots. You know, he was smoking cigarettes. And, you know, just before I came into the guitar studio, I was like, oh, my God, who is this dude, man? I want to be like this guy. And he was showing me all these prog rock bands and, like, real rock and roll stuff. So back in the day, it was all really, really rock. You know, I was a real rock guy. I wanted to have tattoos on my face and everything. I just wanted to be in the mosh pit. I wanted to be playing them dirty guitarists. And that's kind of where it all started, really. Just, you know, being a young kid, being super impressionable and seeing this whole world of rock, really. And obviously, as a young child, where everything in the world seems ginormous to you, rock and roll just seems like this gargantuan, ridiculous thing. And you're like, my God, look at these larger-than-life characters doing these ridiculous things, making these people scream in arenas. Could I do that one day? I'm still not doing that, but I'll tell you what. I've enjoyed the journey well, since then, but yeah, real good fun. Amazing, mate. You spoke about face tattoos there and wanting to get them, and, and it's weird because the, the kids getting face tattoos now are the ones who are like emo trap artists, so there's, I guess there's something yeah. to say about that. I want to talk about Beach for Tiger because you've been yeah. in it for a very long time, but before right. BFT, there was something else, <laughs> wasn't there? Can you tell the listeners about that and then how it organically grew into the band it is today, maybe the inspiration behind the name too? Okay, so... I, well, sing and play guitar in a band called Beach for Tiger, which is a neo-psychedelic sort of thing. But prior to that, you are certainly correct, mate. Research on point. <laughs> we done a band throughout our school years called March on Rome. Now, March on Rome, that is a... It's a great name. <laughs> is it, though? It sounds like a, po like a post-hardcore band. I tell you what, that was very much the scene we were dipping our toes into. We were, you know... From first to last and day to Yeah, it, oh, man. <laughs> While she sleeps, partway drive. You know, we, we all subscribe to Koran. We all watch Scuzz TV. That was our jam. You know, we were the kind of rock kids back at school. But, yeah, March on Rome, the actual... Um, so, the actual meaning of that name is, I think... <laughs> this sounds quite bad. Well... No, it's not actually, no, it's not too bad. Uh, but my brother was really into history. And um, March from Rome was actually like a historical event where I think like Mussolini or Stalin or something marched somewhere and done some... Steady, you know, we're, into, some... we're into difficult territory here. <laughs> yeah, oh, it, <laughs> this wasn't us supporting that cause at all. But my brother was like, I learned about this thing in history called March from Rome. And I thought we could call our band it. And obviously I was 12. So I was like, yeah, let's do it, mate. Yeah, I've written this riff. Let's call our band March from Rome. Sweet. Well, that then essentially catalyzed four or five years of us attempting to make rock music. And it was a bloody great time in my life and I cherish it dearly. We've done so many rubbish gigs, playing to two people, playing to the man and his dog in the back, you know, all of the absolute classic, you know, all the cliches of starting out as a kid, trying to, you know, essentially learning the ropes, just getting your badges, getting your badges of honor in the rock scene. And then from this, essentially, we all started to go to sixth form, 
applying on UCAS, getting to university and stuff. And we all realized, do you know what? I don't think this rock thing is really for me. You know, you, you hear a Marvin Gaye record for the first time. You start to hear, yeah, man, you start to hear all of this cool stuff. You know, you maybe you maybe meet a few few cool cats who are, you know, smoking some of that wacky backy and you're getting exposed to some of these cool tunes and you're like, oh, well, maybe I need to ditch the old Kerrang identity and slide into this kind of progressive, ambient, electronic, soulful world of, that I'm yet to discover because booty well, shaking, you know, basically, exactly booty <laughs> shaking, vibing music. Because you know, as a teenager in Essex, you're not really exposed to a lot of niche, cool scenes, essentially. Whereas I went to music uni in London, and I just met so many incredible people, like people who I I'm still friends with to this day, who just had this ridiculous music taste, and I was exposed to all these amazing things. Same as my brother, he was exposed to that, and all the other people I play with, like, well, I used to play with Sam Drury, as you know. We started to get exposed to these ludicrously wavy jams, essentially, and then we were like, okay, we've been doing this March from Rome thing for about four or five years. We probably should rethink and rebrand this because we started to get into the whole neo-psychedelic thing. This is one of the genres that was amidst all of these booty-shaking cool genres we were being exposed to. So then we were like, okay, we can't really do this whole sound under the moniker of March from Rome. Let's start again. So one time, me and my brother were out in the garden, you know, smoking. I won't say what. And he was like, dude, what would sound good supporting Tame Impala? And I was like, I don't know. And he just said... <laughs> and he just, and not he... stereotypical there at all, eh? <laughs> yeah. Tame Impala. Do not get me wrong, mate. My God, we really do base a lot of our audible identity on Tame Impala. My God, they're simply an outstanding musical act. But... um. Yeah, we sat in the garden and he just said, what about Beach for Tiger? I mean, as you can see, my brother likes to name things. He seems to name a lot of things. And I was just like, okay, yeah. <laughs> it wasn't a name that stuck straight away. But in the six month period where we started to develop that project, that name essentially just stuck. We were in rehearsal rooms like, yeah, we're Beach for Tiger. And we didn't really take it seriously. But then we got to the point where we actually had recording ready to release. And we were like well, we haven't got any other names, so let's just call it Beach for Tiger. And then that started the last five or six year journey that I'm at the tip of now, where we've been doing Beach for Tiger and indulging in this kind of multi-genre, well, I don't, don't want to self-proclaim that it's cool, but this kind of more trendy current thing that we're doing now, as opposed to the rock kids at school thing that was March from Rome. Yeah, it's great. It's a great name. It almost sounds like one of the coolest things you could name a band, but also like a really sweet children's book at the same time. <laughs> I would also say one of the worst things you can name about. I feel like it falls into the caliber of like red hot chili peppers where it's just completely absurd and means nothing. But you're like, Do you know what? It sticks. We'll go with it. Exactly, mate. Can you talk to me about live performance and producing now? Because you've been going for so long. Can you take me back to maybe your first ever live performance as Beach with Tiger? You know, where was it? How did it go? Was there any sort of nerves or anxieties? You know, walk me through that mental process. Ah, I certainly can, mate. To be fair, I mean, there's two significant checkpoints here. There's the first performance as March from Rome, which I think is worth sharing. And also the first one as Beach for Tiger. Because Please do, share I both. Think, I think they're two relentlessly varying experiences in their own right. So March from Rome, our first performance. To be fair, I think we almost got teased into thinking that music was going to be too easy with March from Rome because we started off at school. And as you may be aware, as a school band... If you do a gig, literally everyone you know ever will go to a gig. No pressure. Right? Yeah, which is great because to be fair, we were the only 
kids in our school year that really wasn't a you know i'm not ripping my school or anything but it wasn't a creative school you know there wasn't many communities of people doing these sort of things within our school literally me and my mate sam jury or draws as you know him by we literally used to just go to the music rooms at lunch and just jam and make all our music and stuff and then out of nowhere this battle of the bands event came about and we were like okay we can finally do something with our march from rome band go and play to the whole school oh my god it's gonna be lit dude and uh <laughs> Sorry, honestly. Was lit a thing back then? I don't even know if it, it was. It wasn't, but I'm bringing modern colloquialisms back to. <laughs> I'm just pretending. I'm, I'm just pretending that a decade ago we were up to date with you know the Twitter trends of now. Yeah, you're like doing the reverse Shrek. <laughs> yeah, exactly that, mate. Exactly that. So yeah, so we had this March from Rome thing going on. We had this guy who I still know now, James Nolan. He was the singer of the band. He had a great voice, and a kid called Sam O'Brien, my brother Mike, and dear friend Neil. We had this band going. It was this really cool thing to us. We thought, we were like, we're going to do Wembley next year. It's going to be the best. So anyway, we're about to do our first show. And the Battle of the Bands, there really wasn't much contest. I won't lie to you. That sounds pretty arrogant. But like, people were like, you know, going up doing like, you know, one person on a guitar doing a cover. And we came in with this bombastic six band rock show. And the school hall was packed. I swear that, you know, forgive my memory of it's, you know, gone a bit. But I feel like there was like a hundred people there. We were getting mosh pits going. We won the Battle of the Bands. It was just incredible. And obviously, I think I was 12 or 13. To be fair, in terms of my mental state of mind, it was just an absolute boost. You know, walking around school like, oh, dude, Battle of the Bands was sick, man. It was kind of, it's kind of like a high school fantasy, really. And I think the fact that I've been playing guitar for four years around that time, that just really reimbursed or just enhanced my infatuation towards the art itself. I was like, oh my God, the feeling, that pure adrenaline and euphoria of just performing to people and people giving you affirmation for what you're doing and providing this electric atmosphere that people are going to take away with them into the week and doing something larger than life, essentially. And obviously, you know, as a 12-year-old kid at school where you're just bopping around, coming out of maths class, like, yeah, I've got some homework tonight. That's a pretty incredible thing to do. So I think it really, really enticed me and maybe want to take it really seriously, especially the fact that I was one of the only kids doing it in my year at school. So I was like, well, it doesn't seem like it's that saturated. Lo and behold, the music industry is actually very saturated, guys. I would <laughs> highly recommend being aware of that because if you're the only band in your school, my God, there is a lot of talent out there that you've got to compete with. My goodness gracious. But yeah, so that was a crazy experience. And as you can imagine, it was just, it might as well have been part of the high school musical Sega. It was just yeah. a, 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 rid a ridiculous experience and maybe want to do music forever, essentially, because pretty much a lot of the first shows that we've done were these kind of crazy school gatherings like we then done a show at the local football club and like a hundred people from school came because within our six-piece band one of us is in you know year eight one year nine one year ten we were bringing in people from all over the place and it's rare nowadays to be able to bring it have that kind of pull from your friendship group because obviously as an older person you have responsibilities and stuff like this and your friendship groups are a lot more limited whereas at school you have a lot more disposable friendships of course like oh yeah i'll invite my friends 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 and it ends up turning into this absolute frenzy where it becomes an excuse for everyone to go out and drink cider you know like yeah. people do at school and we almost provided like somewhat of a template for people to have them sort of nights so it created a bit of a community and a social life around it so yeah doing music in school was a crazy experience and really really fantastic fun mm. So, shall we jump forward to the Beach for Tiger? Yes, please, show? yeah. <laughs> to be fair, I say it's drastically different, but to be fair, again, I feel like we were kind of tantalized into this idea that it was all going to be 
singing and dancing all roses and daisies from the start because our first show was supporting a band called Youth Club. Have you heard of them? Yeah, I've heard of Youth Club. Uh, yeah, they're a band that I played bass for for, for about three years until they essentially stopped doing the band. So prior to me joining Youth Club, playing bass and touring with them, we knew them really well because we recorded with their drummer, Reese Broomfield. Shout outs to Reese because he is a legend on the scene. Everyone locally who smashes music knows Reese Broomfield because he is an absolute don in the studio. So yeah, we were working with him on our first EP for Beach the Tiger at his studio, SS2. I forgot how the conversation came about, but we knew all the guys from Youth Club and they were like, oh, they were listening to some of our stuff that we were putting together at the time of Reese. And they were like, oh, come and play with us at Chinneries. You know, we want to help you guys launch this project and give you a good first show. You know the venue Chinneries, right? Mm-hmm. In South End, right? Yeah. yeah. A, a real notorious local venue. It's one of them ones. Oh, Oasis played here back in the day. Oh, Arctic Monkeys played it. Yeah, but yeah. anywho, it is a really fantastic venue and it is. it holds its own as one of the relics of Essex music, if you will. It's a great place. So we got offered this show to support Youth Club at Chinneries and they always sell it out. It's a 400 cap venue. So we're jumping from this... Battle of the Bands as March and Rome, which was a great show. To now, an actual serious 400-cap gig that was sold out. You know, we were going to be playing to minimum 200 to 250 people on our first ever show. And at this point, it was a much different ball game to it was back at school. Because back at school, let's get real, your musical sensibilities are far less developed and far less mature, right? So all you care about is getting on stage and making some noise and just having a great time. And don't get me wrong, we still wanted to go on stage and make some noise and have some fun. But the fact that we were launching a project we were a lot more mindful and considerate of made it a bit more of a nerve-wracking experience because we were going in front of real music listeners, not people we knew from school who would just blindly support us for, you know, for whatever reason. You know, because people back at school would just be like, oh, that was amazing, that was amazing, oh, that was the best yeah, thing very ever. general feedback. Well, well, exactly. Yeah. Whereas realistically, was it the best thing ever? No, we were just kind of, you know, dicking around as kids and making some noise. It might have sounded okay. But now we were actually exposed to an audience who were there paying tickets to actually see some music that they wanted to maybe go home and listen to. So that gave it a much different energy and we all cared about it a lot more because, you know, we were 19, 20 years old. We were like, okay, now we're actually trying to do this seriously and make this a real thing. So let's do this. And we played a six song set and you know what? It went fantastic. And this was my real first experience as fronting a band as well because I'm predominantly a guitar player, not necessarily a singer. So in March and Rome, I wasn't really the singer for most of it. I was towards the end, but we had this guy, James Nolan, who was a fantastic singer. He was just one of these dudes who could just sing. He didn't even have any lessons. He just knew how to sing. But yeah, so this was also my first experience of really fronting the band. And my God, that's where the nerves really came in for me because mm. all of my life throughout school, I just played guitars in band. Just you know, And there's a real kind of invisible defense wall when you're playing guitar or bass because you're... Your stage left. You're just looking at the singer. The singer's getting all the attention from everyone. Everyone's looking at him. And you're there just adding in. You're just chipping into the audio experience. Like, okay, I'm a guitarist. I got this. And I tell you what, guitars are a lot more reliable than your larynx. I will tell you that for now. <laughs> because if you are in any sort of bad place, my God, your voice is essentially affected. Like, I could have the worst flu ever. I could still play the guitar absolutely fine because my fingers aren't affected. So in this instant here, you know, I was like, trying to not smoke too many cigarettes before the gig and stuff, trying to not drink too much because I was really nervous about my voice. So essentially, it was the start of a journey into really understanding myself as a singer and how I had to maintain and control my, essentially, how I am to be able to perform at my, the best of my abilities. Because fronting a band 
I will say is the most nerving experience ever because a vocal performance is one of the most exposed and personal things you can offer into a musical experience because every voice is so unique and different to any other singer. No voice is essentially the same, whereas a lot of guitarists can play the same chord in quite a similar way. So it was a really interesting experience essentially singing to people. In a nutshell, I was crapping myself. <laughs> and I think I'd done okay. I think people were like, oh, you've got a nice voice. I was like, oh, gee, thanks, guys. <laughs> I really tried my best. Yeah, you secretly don't know that I absolutely was bricking it. But there you go. Since then, I feel like I've really tried to come into the art form of being a singer and trying to make it not rubbish, <laughs> essentially, yeah. because it's you did really a good job, man. Thank you very much, man. It's very easy to be self-deprecated and really, you know how it is when you like hear yourself. I mean, you run a podcast. It must have been, you know, <laughs> you it must have been weird. It. Exactly this, mate. You do get used to it. It must have been weird, like at first, like, oh my god, do I sound like that when I say that word? Yeah, your perception you of your brain is different it, to how exactly. you think your voice sounds. Yeah, massively, yeah. Because when you actually hear yourself back recorded, or you hear yourself for a big PA, there is, you know, the way that you perceive acoustics within your cranium space and the way your ears are vibrating, it's a completely different experience. So. As a singer, it's a world of concern <laughs> when you're hearing your voice back and all these different variations. But as I'm sure you're aware, mate, you do get used to it after a while. But um, yeah, in terms of mindset, yeah, being a singer was just a whole different ball game for me. Mm. So yeah, so yeah, I've really waffled on there about them two shows, but quite pinnacle checkpoints <laughs> in my life as a musician. You know, being just a guitarist at Battle of the Bands and then being a singer in front of a serious audience. So that mm. was a yeah, quite a differing experience and something I will never forget. No, it's a great experience there and I'm glad you shared it, mate. Can I just ask you before we move on to Rayowa, what outlet out of producing, because you are producing your own right too, songwriting, playing instruments or even singing has the biggest impact on your mental health and which one helps you the most, do you think? So just kind of extracurricular activity, if you will. Yes. Uh, something other than music, essentially. Okay, well, interestingly enough, I really, really love exercise and mindful practice so recently actually i actually got my level three diploma to be a personal trainer <laughs> oh amazing mate congrats yeah man well not in the vein of what's his what's his name rishi sunak you know the whole retrain thing not that i was bowing down to this campaign but i essentially retrained because i didn't have a gig for 18 months so i was like okay i really like running and push-ups so could i make money off of running and push-ups so yeah i've done a qualification for that recently but anyway I'm diverging. So yeah, essentially in terms of impacts on my mental health and things that keep me in a good headspace, I'm sure you know this exercise, aerobic activity, resistance training, yoga, meditation. Honestly, I try and do them as much as I possibly can every single day, really. Mm. If I don't do running one day, I'll try and do yoga. If I don't do resistance training, I'll try and do meditation because you can be in the worst place. And as soon as you do one of these activities, you engage with some sort of primal instinct within you because we live inherently sedentary lifestyles in the 21st century, right? We're very much encouraged to sit on chairs, watch TV, get the takeaway, not move about and essentially deplete the kind of chemical balance within our body as human beings. And I feel there's a really profound thing about reconnecting with that because pre-technology days and pre the internet, you know, pre the industrial revolution, pre this world that we live in now, which is a crazy world to live in, Human beings were incredibly active. Yeah, life expectancy was incredibly short because diseases weren't discovered and whatnot. But you, if you think of a primal caveman, they literally had to run and chase wild animals and stuff. So they were incredibly virile and active human beings. Whereas I think that's something that we've massively lost in the modern world. Hence, you know, there is a bit of a, well, you know, notoriously the Western world 
isn't a very healthy place to be. So I really think it's good, not only for your physical health, but for your mental health to re-engage with these senses within us because we are animals essentially and we need to engage with these bodily functions to rebalance the serotonin mm. and you know get endorphins running through the body and to get our organs pumping. It's just so important. And I neglected that for many years, but getting back into fitness and stuff, honestly, it took me from being in a horrendous place to being in you know the best place i've been in in quite a long time because mm. i went through some you know whatever dodgy romantic situations that really yeah you know, we've all we'll been get there. to that we'll had... get to that mate yeah we'll get yeah. to that and yeah. um but yeah the exercise and the mindful practices honestly that's my go-to for mental health what about basically. within music within music yeah so which one um, out of songwriting or producing or do i find the most yeah kind of... what what helps you the most yeah do you know what mate i would definitely say producing just making beats I love it so much. I love songwriting, but there's a certain level of awareness that you're engaging with when you're trying to present a story, right? So with songwriting, you're obviously, you're really trying to put across a point in a really, you're really thinking about how you're putting across a message to people, which sometimes takes you out of that flow state. I'm sure you like the expression flow state when, you know, when you're just doing something and it's just seamless and it's wonderful. But producing a beat, honestly, when you're there, it's just you and your laptop. <laughs> Sounds a bit kinky, sorry. <laughs> it's just you and your laptop and you're just getting a beat going. Honestly, hours and hours can fly by. But oh my God, it's four in the morning and I've just made this ridiculous, weird, ambient trap beat. Yeah, producing 100%. Yeah, that's what I fundamentally thrive off of the most, really. Talk to me about Rayowa now because you play bass in their band too. It's another great Essex mm -hmm. band. I'm, I'm really good friends with Dan and some of the boys in oh, the mate. band. How did Absolute you legends. join the band? And then musically, how was it different sonically to Beach for Tiger? Did it perhaps open your eyes to other sounds or change your perspective on anything? And then give me the perspective on being in a nine piece, which I think they are, because that's a lot of voices in the production room on yes. stage. So it could be potentially chaos. Absolutely, mate. That's a good point. Um, okay, so an interesting story in terms of me joining Ray Hour. A story that I really, I really enjoy how it all came about. It was all quite spontaneous. And my God, to this day, I'm still honored to be in a band with them guys because they're absolutely sick musicians. They really know what they're doing and they're just, they're visionaries and relentlessly creative people who have mm. created an amazing project. So how it all kind of came about is about three years ago, Beach the Tiger supported Courts. Do you know Courts? Yeah, so I discovered Courts before Rayowa. Exactly this. And so did I, of course. So, um... Of courts. Nah, I'm joking. That was a bad joke. But, um, I'll keep so, that yeah, in. Beach, yeah, keep that in. Please don't edit that out because that was the dad joke of the year. So about three years ago, I think 2017, so probably four years ago, Beach with Tiger supported courts. Um, they got in touch with us. I think Reese or Dan reached out to us. I'm like, oh, come play with us again. What are we like? Come play with us at Chinneries. Beach with Tiger obviously love supporting great bands at Chinneries. So we went and played the show with them and they were... You know, we were quite in awe because we loved Courts. We thought they were this sick. We thought, I mean, I still think they are this sick band. And we really looked up to them. We loved all the material they were putting out. So we were absolutely gassed to be getting on a show with them. And yeah, we went and played the show. And we, we didn't necessarily know if we were going to be like talking to them loads or not. But they just seemed to really warm to us. And we, we actually really connected and clicked as mates. We all seemed to be on the same page musically and just socially. We just got on like a house on fire. So... Yeah, that show went fantastic. They played a banging show. We picked up a bunch of fans from that. So we stayed in touch with them after that show. I think we may have done another show with them at Chinneries. I'm pretty sure it happened more than once. So we essentially built that bridge for that show, getting to know Courts, which was great for us because obviously 
as any up and coming band you want to network with bands who are bigger than you who can pull bigger crowds and can essentially give you fans by you know offering their support so yeah we built that bridge with them and then from that i can't remember the exact day or week but they essentially have a studio in essex somewhere and they were like okay um do you guys like want to you know share a studio space with us and i was like oh yeah that sounds absolutely sick because obviously making music in your bedroom does have its restrictions because you, because you can't really blare it into the night 24 7 right you're at 2am you have to get the headphones but obviously in a proper studio space with no neighbors around you can really go crazy so we started renting the studio space with them or essentially just sharing the rent which then led us to hang out on an incredibly regular basis we were hanging out every week not every week most days most nights i was going down there all the time i got obsessed with it the fact that we had this space where we could jam out and develop our community and whatnot this is when courts was coming to an end and then in this transition phase reese the producer the, the key producer in rayoa he, he started to show us all this stuff from rayoa and we're like oh my god this is insane it was essentially taking elements of quartz's sound but making it well yeah well, it had fragments of quartz's identity but it was certainly its own thing in the sense that it was this more melodic yeah it became more thing. disco and less like just jack disco kind of thing yeah, yeah exactly yeah. but i think instrumentally quartz had that there you could see that the catalyst was there for well you see the the ingredients were there for that sort of disco identity but it hadn't been fully realized because you know quartz was had done its thing for x amount of years then from that the idea well courts stopped i'm sure you saw that and then this rayora project i don't think it was called rayora at the time that started to come to the floor and as rayora was getting developed we were down the studio 24 7 hanging out with them chilling out drinking beers doing whatever so we were like really good mates at this point we'd gone from just building a bridge to becoming really good mates and then one time it was like a moment in like a school of rock film i was just sitting on a bass amp playing the bass I like to play the bass. <laughs> I was just shredding out some funky riffs. And then Dan was like, I think, I'm pretty sure it was Dan who said like, why don't we just get Pete to play bass for us? And I was like, me? I was like, really? You want me to be in like, like essentially the new courts? Because <laughs> obviously I was a big courts fan. I was like, oh my God, I'm joining courts. <laughs> then essentially that happened. I think from there, they then started to pick from different bands that they knew and start to create this new collective that was then became Rayoa. So then they picked Nico out, who was in a band called Smooth Ends. My brother's on the percussion. And, you know, this whole band f formed around that and it became this wonderful big collective. Now, going back to what you were saying, there's nine people there. And that could be a bit crazy in terms of too many cooks, spoil the broth, whatever. All of the cliche phrases evolve in that. It's actually really not that at all. You'd be surprised. It's not like nine dudes trying to be a rock band because you can get four-piece bands where the egos are really, really fierce and people really need to have their say and if people don't they start to become disinterested and lose their love for the project but with rayoa i think where we're all in our mid to late 20s now we've all done that before and there's no energy for it yeah, yeah well you just know what role you play because i've been there i've been in bands before where i really want to have my voice heard i really want to you know have like a certain percentage of involvement in everything that i do because naturally as a young musician you have this kind of hunger to have your voice heard right but as you get older you start to realize that there is a sort of an unwritten hierarchy to projects and you realize that okay reese is doing the production here like uh, dan's really in control of like the vision and like the pr and luke's the lead vocalist i'm the bassist so i'm just going to play my role as a bass player you start to have a sense of self-awareness and you're like okay i'm not really going to interrupt with the flow of this by just 
chopping in my ego out of nowhere. And I think everyone in the band was like that. People were just turning up like, okay, I'm the drummer. I'm going to be the goddamn drummer and I'm going to do a great job at it rather than like, uh, actually, I really, really think I need to write two songs. Otherwise, I'm leaving because I don't know. I just don't really see that as much anymore. I feel like people just let it happen and people are just happy to be part of such a great band all mm. in all, you know? Mm. So honestly, there have been no issues like that whatsoever with Rayoa. You'd think more people, more potential for chaos. If anything, it's actually just like one big, happy, funky family. <laughs> mm, amazing. I yeah, want to move on to the industry and some of the issues that you wanted to discuss, mate. Because when we spoke off oh, air, yeah. you said that the music industry is laced with chronic mental health issues and that there is a massive sugar-coated perception of musicians. That's the words you said to me. Tell me a bit about that and expand on what you meant by that. Okay, so is the music industry being laced with mental health issues? Well... It absolutely is because going back to the whole high school fantasy of doing Battle of the Bands and all your schoolmates turning up, it's this glossy, glamorous, amazing thing. And as a young musician who's very impressionable and unaware of what adult life holds, you just think it's all going to pan out like that. You think you're going to be selling out Wembley by the age of 19. You think you're going to be hitting the charts like One Direction or whatever just as soon as you start doing it. You just think you're going to become a musician and it's just going to work out. But to be honest with you, the realities of it is that it's an incredibly saturated industry and it's very unfair because I've seen some of the most talented musicians I've ever met get nowhere and I've seen talentless people get to the top, you know, because... And unfortunately, there is no barometer that makes it makes it fair. It's not... It's not meritocratic, is it? Exactly, mate. It's not meritocratic. What a fantastic word to use in this instance because where creativity is so subjective, objective, whatever one, we'll call it objective for now. Yeah, creativity is so subjective that, yeah, like you say, you can't exactly base success on the merit of what you're doing. Like if you know a particular amount of scales that doesn't mean you're necessarily entitled to earn more money in the music industry you can literally sing bar bar black sheep and somehow you're going to be selling out wembley arena it's quite absurd in that yeah, sense so drill beat on suppose, it yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. as much as i'm not hating on drill i love drill but that could actually be a thing <laughs> you do get that you get this kind of weird hybrid of nursery rhymes and drill beats i've seen a few things like that i'm like Ring a ring of roses. Yeah, like, massive hi hat like, and massive drum yeah. drum bait. Yeah, I'm like, what? What is this absurd contrast going on here? <laughs> but yeah, anywho, man. Yeah, it's quite weird. I suppose this being essentially the premise of how the music industry works can breed a sense of entitlement. Something that I don't try and indulge within myself. But don't get me wrong, when you do see people thriving and succeeding, when you know that you've been putting in the effort for your whole entire life you've made sacrifices with your work life your social life you've put a lot of things on the line to do music because it does take a lot of sacrifice then when you don't quite get where you want to get to by a certain age you know i'm 26 now man i'm not old but it's getting to a time where i'm like okay like i really want this to work out soon because i do not want to do anything else and i essentially don't want to be a washed up musician you know mm. and that really plays on your mind when you're a kid and the dream the dream is so alive when you're a kid essentially You've got the world ahead of you. You've got, you know, this decade that's passed me, you know, at the start of that decade, I had the whole world before. The world was my oyster. I was like, ah, oh, anything can happen. I could be touring America by the time I'm 20. And life flies by, man. And you see people succeed who you didn't think were going to succeed. And you're like, okay, like I've actually put a lot of work in and things haven't, you know, I'm not making money off. That. I'm still flipping burgers, man. I'm still hustling part-time jobs and Obviously, the COVID pandemic completely screwed things up in terms of like Rayoa Beach the Tiger. We were, you know, we were doing quite well and, mm. you know, playing great gigs. And a lot of our life's work had gone into these gigs. And, you know, it got 
stifled by a pandemic and you're like again this goes back to the fact that it breeds like a sense of entitlement you're like my god like i've put so much work in and why have i not reaped the rewards of it yet so it's it's a confusing one because you can be given it all on a plate you can have a miley cyrus situation where your dad happens to be billy ray cyrus and you're like oh here you go here is endless success and money on a plate mm. or you can grind and hustle and really learn the craft and try and master what you do and do everything you can to be the best and most vigorous musician you possibly can be and you will still be working a normal job obviously that's going to play on you you're like well humans love rewards right we put in work to things to essentially acquire affirmation and rewards so in creative industries acting art music people will work their whole lives to essentially get nothing and be broke <laughs> so that's quite that's quite the paradox that can really play with your head yeah i, I talked about this the other day actually because i see oftentimes in interviews artists say oh i can never work a nine to five and i i can't understand people that do that when i actually think that's quite a stupid thing to say because that's the majority of your peers work nine to five jobs and do music at the same time because music is their passion and they need to survive mate that's a really interesting point because don't get me wrong i think i shared a similar level of ignorance when i was you know like 16 when you're a kid you're like oh man i'm never gonna work a job i'm just gonna rock and roll my whole goddamn life <laughs> and then it, then then it hits you you're like oh yeah finances are a reality that i have to abide by and it's incredibly ignorant to, to assume that seven billion people on earth are just going to be rock stars because that's not how life works. A lot of people want to find a base level of economic success so they can fulfill other ambitions like buying property or traveling or doing many other things that life has to offer. So you get that a lot in creative industries. People are like, oh my God, how, are you, how do you work an office job? You suck, man. And it's like, realistically, you end up working a job anyway and then you realize, okay, life has impeccable realities that you have to live up to. And you know, a job can be a means to fulfilling your passions or you know, buying the house you want to buy. So- mm creative industries for something that is so inherently rooted in putting yourself out there obviously you're going to get some pretty driven egos and i think ego is something that all humans encounter we all have an ego it's just how we you have to have a level of it in the industry to succeed don't you to be honest exactly i yeah. think i think all humans have an element of ego within them in any extent the ego is an essential part of the human experience i just think it's how we interpret and perceive our ego because some people can let it run wild some people can really understand the idea of like ego and how it channels i don't know yeah <laughs> it's a yeah. it's a mad it's a mad thing <laughs> i yeah. want to move on to perfectionism culture because like you said you are producing your own right and a pretty good one if i might say so but it can oh, creep so in much. when producers are so dedicated to their art and it's something i've spoken to a lot about with djs and producers on my dj series behind the decks has that ever affected your mental health p and if so in what ways absolutely absolutely has see the thing with production is is that there's kind of two stages well there's many stages to production but if i had to break it down into a really simple presentation of what, what production is you have the first stage of just getting the preliminary idea down getting down the initial atmosphere that you had in your head which is a really fun free-flowing flow state of an experience where you're just making an idea it's this great thing and you're not overthinking it because you're lost in the moment you're just creating this idea and this you're bringing this notion to life that was in your head. You were in the car listening to a song and then you're like, oh, I need to go and make something of that ilk. And then you go home and you just make it and it's fun and it's free flying. Then comes everything after that when you're trying to finish a song. Now, I'm sure you've maybe had this with songs that you listen to in your own time. If you listen to your favorite song 
200 times you're gonna get sick of it right mm, so depends on the song i have got songs that i've listened to over 100 times on my ipod <laughs> mate to be fair i will stand with you on that there are <laughs> some songs to be okay my favorite album ever lonerism by tame impala i listened to it so much that i did have to have a break from it no but skips with, yeah exactly, those albums that are no skips you can just listen to any time of day yeah. any time of the week yeah and just listen to them mate, and bang through it lonerism was a no skip situation but i did get to the point where i had to have a break from it but with production when you're finishing your production you will literally have it on loop all day you're not just listening to it a hundred times in a month you're listening to it say if i've got a 32 bar idea on the go that will be on potentially for five hours straight just going round and round all day and all day and essentially there's like a diminishing graph of your level of interest towards the idea because you have the idea initially and you're like oh my god this is the best thing ever then as the day goes on you're like that rim shot sounds crap oh my god that shake is really not sitting right oh my god that pad isn't stereo enough oh my essentially your mind is analyzing it to such a ruthless extent that you become desensitized to it yeah and then it's overthinking self-doubt isn't it really exactly yeah because you, you start you get into this wormhole of overthinking the idea and that then somewhat perpetuates this idea of perfectionism because you're trying to chase your initial excitement for the idea but you're never going to get back that initial excitement that you had for an idea because you've just heard it a thousand times and somehow you've got to dig deep and find it within yourself to finish that idea even though you've heard it a thousand gazillion times and that's something i really battle with and i'm sure a lot of producers battle with is that <sighs> finishing a song is really really hard i was i will say that now it's so hard to take something from an initial notion and idea to a fully realized fully mixed and fully mastered thing yeah it really perpetuates this kind of ruthless perfectionism that can really get you down to the point where you're literally sat there like this is crap i hate this this is i, I don't like this anymore you get to the point where it's crazy that the mind can dissect something to the point where you used to love it to bits and then it takes you to the point where you hate it. That's crazy. How can you love something so much and then break it down so much in your mind that you think it's an utter piece of trash? So mm. yeah, you're really battling with this sense of perception towards your own creativity essentially because you can be feeling what you're doing so much and then it can just deplete into this <laughs> ruthless sense of loathing essentially. So mm. yeah, it can really play with your mind. And you can get, honestly, I can get really down. It sounds quite extreme, but like I'm so passionate about things I produce that I can be there like, oh, I'm not making the sort of music I want to make. Like, this is not good enough, man. You start really doubting yourself. But then when you get to that point, you've got to take a day off from it and somehow you reimburse the magic in your ears. You get back to it and you're like, oh, do you know what? I remember why I enjoyed this in the first place. So I think essentially you've got to know when to step away from an idea, essentially. Exactly. <laughs> to avoid, avoid that, yeah. Yeah. I want to finish on your discography before we move on to your mental health journey pete and we're going to pick out yeah. a few highlights here can you tell me about your solo single shavasana i think uh, i'm pronouncing shavasana. it right shavasana sorry which is shavasana, just like yeah. this dreamy sort of jazz goodness single i think it's oh, based on a yoga mate. pose and then can you mate, also it... tell me about your latest single for beach tiger which is called days which yes the final bridge sounds like it's like it's got this brass solo that sounds a bit like the crescendo to like a james bond soundtrack <laughs> but it's um but it's pandemic yeah. related right 
mate, it is so pandemic related. Interestingly enough, both of them tunes, obviously this is the Vent podcast. It's very much rooted in ventilating one's mental health issues, which I, I, I'm here for it, mate. I love it. <laughs> us, us dudes have got to speak up more, man. You know, Cheers, we've, got to, we've got to get it. We've got to get out there. Obviously, as you know, blokes need to open up more about their mental health. But anywho, I digress. So yeah, both of them tunes are actually very much pandemic related. So with the first one, Shavasana, which is an instrumental, despite the fact that it's an instrumental, it does somewhat tell a tale of trying to find tranquility and peace within a time of absurdness and craziness. So I really got into what I mentioned earlier that I really enjoy fitness and well-being in terms of being something that helps me control my state of mind and help me helps me remain in a positive frame. So yoga, I really got into at the start of the pandemic. That was something I neglected. I kind of done all the running and all the other bits, but didn't really do the yoga side of things. So when I started off, it was this quite bleak realization that I was this stiff mess. I couldn't touch my toes. My back was a mess. But then as I got into the process of doing yoga, I realized how amazing it is for your mental health and how how much it cools the central nervous system and how much it changes your state of mind is impeccable you can spend 20 minutes on the mat and come off and you're like hi everyone would anyone like a chamomile <laughs> it really does turn you into this zen human being so that beat shavasana i don't think i made it with yoga in mind but i was making it and obviously i was making it in the depths of lockdown and um you know i'll be taking breaks having a bit of a stretch out and whatnot and then just the atmosphere of the beat seemed to reflect a lot of that kind of tranquility i was trying to channel within my mindful practices so i feel like when i hear it i can feel the sort of state of mind i was in i was trying to channel some kind of inner zen creatively i was trying to get that off of my chest so yeah the title of it shavasana that actually means the corpse pose you usually end a practice by laying down on the mat and essentially this is a beautiful notion essentially soaking up the nutrients of the earth which is after a practice you're laying on the floor like a corpse and you're soaking up the nutrients of the earth at the end of that tomb I actually took like a sample of like a yoga YouTube, yoga of Adrian. She's this like YouTube instructor. And she's like, just take this more. Yeah, she's saying all this Zen stuff. And yeah, I try to essentially kind of channel that tranquility into this piece of music. And yeah, that definitely makes it pandemic related because my God, a lot of us struggle to keep our sense of Zen within within all of this. I think we had to be very conscious of trying to be chill because every time you opened your goddamn phone they'd be like oh, millions of people dead everyone's dying the economy's screwed everything's absolutely screwed you're screwed the music industry's dead and you're like you had to be like okay i'm just gonna step away from my phone i can't look at this this is simply destroying my mind let's just make some music let's just have a stretch just not look at my phone and yeah just get all namaste and all that <laughs> mm. and then talk to me about days as well because i know that's pandemic related too yes it certainly is mate obviously less directly with the instrumental because it doesn't have any lyrics but um the beach tiger single days is incredibly well it's, it's explicitly pandemic related it's essentially about being within an existential loom 24 7 i mean the lyrics are yeah i mean i don't usually quote lyrics that i've written but this is so obviously pandemic related i find it hard to get lost in the world that's so persistently overwhelming so that's obviously about being overwhelmed by the world 24 7 and struggling to find the peace within all of that but writing that song certainly helped me channel a lot of them thoughts that i was brewing and bottling up within this pandemic because to be honest with you mate as i'm sure it has been for a lot of people it's been probably the worst time of my life it took away the industry that i love i couldn't do anything that i loved doing because i was a gigging musician and essentially having the adrenaline taken out of my life was completely brutal and 
absolutely diminished my mental health into a place I couldn't even comprehend. So yeah, that song really is just about wandering around, socially distancing from people in the park and, you know, just being like, what is going on, man? <laughs> it was mm. quite absurd, but do you know what? The singles had a great reception and I feel like the story is very honest. I always try, you know, you hear a lot of singers saying this and it sounds cliche, but I do try and be honest. I'm not trying to sugarcoat what's going on in the lyrics all of what i write about is what's going on with me so if you mm. want to check in with me go and interpret some beach of tiger songs you'll be like oh is pete all right that song day sounded a bit bleak but don't worry the, the next dp is all quite singing and dancing life's getting a lot better now <laughs> great stuff man and as a final question going on this musical journey for as long as you have and being in beach for tiger and rayoa what has this wider music journey taught you about yourself do you think oh it's a good question man a good question and um Oh, a deep one to answer. What has it taught, taught me about myself? I think it's taught me that I'm quite persistent, perhaps, <laughs> in the sense that I really, really don't want to give up doing music, you know? I think creatively it's taught me so much about myself in terms of my sense of artistic identity and my sense, even my sense of fashion and the way I present myself, the clothes I wear, the fact that I've got tattoos, the fact that I talk in a certain way, the fact that I enjoy certain bits of culture. Obviously, being in a band entices you and gravitates you towards just a whole sense of identity right so your whole identity is forged by being in music but in terms of my real self it's just taught me that i'm i don't know i just will ne i will just never give up on this music thing i'm just really persistent even if i've been thrown obstacles along the way i will always tunnel vision this idea that i will make music work to some degree whether it's some crazy success selling out arenas which i'm realistically we've all got to be real that's that happens to a handful of people or i can just pay rent and have a cool life and play cool gigs get in a van with my mates and travel a bit around europe and do some cool bits then i will make it happen whether it's one end of the spectrum or the other i will make music work to some degree and yeah, I'm 26 now. Again, not old, but I'm at the point where I'm like, okay, we're coming out of this COVID thing. This is going to be a really focused time to really try and make something something sustainable pan out for this music situation. So yeah, being in them bands and being surrounded by the ambitious people that I work with on a regular basis and that I have the pleasure of working with, essentially it rubs off for me and makes me never want to give up because I'm surrounded by ludicrously creative and fantastic people who just make me want to carry on and keep making music until I until I drop. <laughs> We've talked all about your musical journey, Beach with Tiger, Rayowa, everything in between, mate. I want to go behind the mic and talk about your own journey now. So I ask all my special guests this question first. Tell me a bit about your early life in Essex, you know, childhood, teenagers, and looking back, were there any early mental health experiences you can pinpoint? Who's the Pete? we meet here i do understand though that it was a fairly happy childhood is that right my friend i won't lie to you i feel blessed in the sense that my childhood was essentially uninhibited joy i was pretty much on cruise control all throughout puberty young adolescence life was sweet as a nut to be honest with you there were no real early indications of mental health i have had a blessed upbringing my you know roof over my head you know great friends at school done fine at school and stuff and just had a good time didn't get into trouble but had a load of fun it was all just to be honest with you it was almost a bit too easy really and yeah just had an absolutely cracking time to be honest with you mm, mate. Mm. that's probably not exactly what you want to hear on a mental health podcast well maybe it is no it's it good but i always say but, to people yeah. mate that you don't have to have gone through trauma specifically at any point in your life to come on it's all about mental health not just mental illness exactly mate. and as well 
mental health can uh, be on set at any time of your life. It doesn't necessarily have to be something you enjoy your whole life, but certain traumatic events and occurrences can trigger Mm. that so when, when i did start to experience anxiety and depression and stuff it was so confusing because i am notoriously a happy-go-lucky upbeat guy who's just perpetually upbeat about everything ever so for me experiencing that for the first time and actually having these sort of doubts was um was pretty crazy but was yeah it, a shock for you? You, it was a huge shock to answer the initial question like childhood was great man so mm. great like i look back so fondly on all of the memories of my past and just feel great about it. It was such a great time to be alive. And yeah, like times are good now, but obviously we have all communally been enduring a crazy time for mental health with COVID, the COVID pandemic and that. Is, you know, when you feel yourself going through these things now, you're like, okay, this isn't just me right now. This is this is a global thing. We're all communally experiencing this in different ways, but yeah. You had two triggers for your mental health anxiety to fall into a very bad state, Pete. That happened two years ago, and it was specifically health anxiety, I should say. One was the pandemic, and the other was some relationship issues you were having at the time. Now, you can go into as much or as little detail as you want here, but do you want to give some (laughs) context for the listeners and how both of these combine to negatively impact your mental health? I'm right in saying that at one point you were having some really extreme tension in your face, your jaw, and your throat. Yeah, 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 100%, man. Well, uh, obviously, you know, I don't want to be digging out any romantic situations, you know, on air, if you will. But essentially, I'm sure I, a lot of people will relate to this when you're in your young adult life. You you throw yourself into romantic situations and you, you give a lot of yourself, you know. And I'm obviously speaking for myself here, but I'm a very upbeat guy. I give a lot of energy to whoever I whoever I'm with. And essentially what really triggered it, I'm not going to go into too much detail. Or of course, call, yeah. You know, calling out people, but essentially having that thrown back in my face in a really intense way essentially really triggered me to have low self-esteem low sense of self-worth because Mm. the person i was given over was essentially taken taken for granted and just kind of thrown back in my face i always thought i was a really nice guy and really giving and understanding and compassionate but then when that is essentially used to gaslight you and make you feel kind of worthless that Mm. can then make you start to question yourself you're like oh am i Am I really, am I, do I really deserve to be this happy all the time? Like, because it will just get thrown back in my face. Yeah, that definitely really triggered that. The second one, yeah. So have suffered on and off with this condition called TMJ, which stands for temporal, it's the name of the jaw joint, essentially. So essentially, a lot of people do, you know, grind in their sleep. You know, like when you can grind your teeth when you sleep. Essentially, I had done that to like an extreme extent, like literally biting my own face off in my sleep. And I'd wake up, my all my cheeks and my jaw, all the muscles under my tongue were just like clamped up to hell. That created some crazy issues. I was struggling to eat hard foods at one point, And like it really affected my social interactions because like my face and my jaw just didn't feel settled when I was talking to people. I kind of struggled to look people in the face because I was just feeling so tight and tense all the time. And I went to see like a specific physio for that and they they had a little feel and they were like, oh my God, mate, like this is tight as you like. So then like a year later or so, I managed to get on top of it, got like a night guard to stop the grinding and whatnot. I found out I had to get my wisdom teeth taken out. So when I was 20, my dentist kind of vaguely mentioned like, you might need to get your wisdom teeth taken out. So five years later, when all this jaw stuff started happening, my dentist was like, okay, you really need to get your wisdom tooth taken out. Had a scan and the wisdom tooth was like attached to my jaw, like holy rooted moly. onto my, onto my, holy moly. Mola, mole. there we go. <laughs> holy mola, that's it. 
dental. I'm leaving that one in as well. In somewhere. Oh, please leave that in. I love that. So yeah, like I got all four of my wisdom teeth taken out, and I know it's it's a pretty common procedure, but essentially. I should have got it done five years prior. You know, because people can clench in their sleep and it can create a bit of tension, but mine was so extreme that when I got the wisdom tooth taken out, he had to shave a bit of my jaw out to like get the tooth out. So like that was obviously creating a lot of this buildup of tension in the jaw and stuff. And I won't lie to you, I don't want to seem like, oh, woe is me, but it was incredibly painful. And I had to get a lot of like osteopathic treatment and like physio treatment to like kind of get my jaw muscles to settle back into place again. So I almost had to like reteach myself to kind of like, feel comfortable with my jaw again which is for someone as sociable like i'm a, I'm a singer i'm a sociable guy i'm all you know i'm always out i'm a bit of a socialite i'm always talking you're always using it often like a, <laughs> yeah i mean like evidently now i've been literally rambling on for hours so could you imagine like being in a situation with your mates when you're talking for four hours straight and your your literal jaw the literal limb that helps you talk and eat is actually like really struggling so obviously that then spilled into me kind of being really worried about my health because some of the tensions it creates it's not just in the jaw it can really get into like your cranium and stuff and like create these crazy tensions in your temples and around your head and stuff that got me thinking that i was like oh do i don't sound too extreme on this but like i, I literally convinced myself like i had like something wrong with my brain like mm. i had this terrible headaches all the time to the point where it led me to getting an mri scan because i was honestly transfixed on the idea that i had this brain issue and then obviously i got the results back and it was fine but and that created a vicious cycle of the anxiety actually made it worse because obviously I was holding the anxiety in my jaw anyway. So I was like clenching, being all like, oh, and that just made the headaches worse. So I just got, was going spiraling down this pit of worrying that I had something seriously wrong with me. And then I was just perpetually fixated on the idea that I had some insidious conditions, which I'm sure a lot of people have been through that. And it's crazy the power of the mind. If you're anxious about something, your mind can actually release chemicals and signals that make you feel like you're ill. If you're worried about being ill, you will feel ill. You can't convince yourself otherwise. And that is what health anxiety is because anxiety has such a powerful impact on how you feel within your body, right? How did you break that cycle? And then, you know, certainly for me, I had quite a bad level of health anxiety at the start of the first lockdown. I, I think I maybe had phantom COVID or something like that. How yeah. did you break the cycle? And then do you feel like you have control over that health anxiety now? Did the removal yeah. of the wisdom teeth help in any way in sort of giving that relief or not? Yeah, do you know what it did? But it took a little bit of, um, I don't want to compare it to, I don't know because I haven't experienced other serious injuries, but I can imagine for like, I don't know, to draw a random parallel, say if like a football player like done his ankle really badly for like six months, then getting back on the pitch, you'd be like, you know, you've got to kind of retrain your muscle mm, memory. Ease yourself in, yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And and I think that was a really weird thing with the jaw because like it took out a lot of tension and like before I had the wisdom teeth taken out, my jaw would only open like a certain amount. But then afterwards, it's actually start to, it has acquired full range of motion so it was almost like retraining my muscle memory to be like okay i've actually got full use of my jaw now so it was like a bit of a psychological process just trying to understand that that my jaw is not tense anymore and i can use it properly so that was um interesting in terms of breaking the cycle of the health anxiety to be honest with you it got to such a boiling point that i had an mri scan like i was seeing ent people i was seeing neurologists i was i, I got crazy about it because the i was so lost in my own head 24 7 that i was convinced something was wrong with me and to be honest with you i got the call about the mri and they were like you're fine <laughs> and then it didn't sink in straight away but over the next few days i was like essentially retraining my brain to be like don't worry pete you've just got a headache have a glass of water chill out <laughs> it's all a mindset man mm. it is and if you get so lost in that wormhole of your own concerns and 
the way you perceive that your body is working, then you can make yourself feel terrible. But essentially, essentially for me, what broke the cycle was knowledge because knowledge equals power, if you will. If you're knowledgeable of something, if you fully know and understand what's going on, then you'll be fine, right? Mm. So just understanding that everything was fine and that I just had to chill the F out, if you will, mm. helped me break that cycle. I want to move on to a different part of this topic, which is post-lockdown. And the idea that you wanted to speak about here was this having a pressure to live. And I've talked a lot about kind of reopening anxiety and having to mm. kind of like ease yourself back into normal situations and stuff like that. But what has the pandemic done to you in regards to altering that state of mind for you? You know, you told me pre-COVID mm. that you were pretty extroverted, but now you're more leaning towards introversion or maybe sort of a balance between the two. Do you see that as a temporary yeah. change or maybe something more permanent? Mate, that is an incredibly interesting question and something I'm sure a lot of us are battling with at the moment. You're totally right in the sense that, because obviously we spoke prior to this, obviously being a gigging musician, all of what defined my day-to-day -day life was going out rehearsing, going out gigging, going out DJing, going out doing this. So naturally, I not it wasn't even a front. I just was an incredibly sociable person. I loved seeing people all the time. I loved being part of loads of different tight-knit communities of musical people and I loved it. Essentially, I had such a relentless momentum with being sociable that going from 100% to 0% was just a huge shock to my system and I didn't know how to comprehend that. So that essentially sent me down this path of becoming an absolute hermit because when the first lockdown came about, I really struggled with the fact that I wasn't gigging, I wasn't seeing people, I had to speak to people on Zoom and oh my God, I hated it. I hated the whole buffering, <laughs> the whole buffering dynamic. And I was like, this isn't socializing. I'm a real hardcore like analog guy. I'm like, no man, I just want to go meet someone in person and face to face. I don't want to like watch them buffer for like 30 seconds while we talk. I had my birthday on Zoom for God's sake. Same. But so yeah, so my way of coping with that was being incredibly introverted. I'll keep up with people on text and stuff, but you know, you can't combat it. You can't pretend that you're this extroverted person during a pandemic where you're encouraged to stay at home forever. <laughs> so, but then interestingly, like you say, then coming out of it, you've actually retrained your social conditioning to be this really introverted person because that's what by law and by obligation to society you're meant to do is to sit indoors and do your bit for the greater good of man. But then when it's like, oh, by the way, you can actually book a table and go and sit outside at a pub now. I was like, okay, uh, I haven't done this in so long. Mm. And then that was a shock because just think of like coming up to 10 plus years of like constantly socializing, going music uni, school, gigging, DJing, literally just cruise controlling through life, loving it. And then going to the absolute rock bottom of no socializing and then coming back to this really restricted, divvered down and diminished version of socializing with loads of restrictions. It's a really unwelcome contrast and to be honest with you it didn't really sit well with me like straight away mm. doing this whole like social like sitting in the park socially distancing my friends and stuff it just felt weird but i suppose like yourself and like many people we have to slowly get used to the idea of socializing again because like you said so interestingly there's like a pressure to live again it's like okay how was your pandemic uh, by the way you can go and like live and like socialize now but it's not as easy as that you have to kind of gain momentum because you've if anything built new routines and new habits in your daily life where it's all about you and it's all about you being by yourself so then actually making plans again i found that so bombastic and it really spun my head out i was like oh like oh i've got to make plans again i've got to consider loads of other people which obviously i loved seeing people again but I just spent the best part of 18 months being by myself. So yeah, that took a, a certain level of adaptation and mindfulness yeah. 
the Roaring Twenties kind of slogan that's being kind of banded about, I think will eventually happen, but I think it's a lot of pressure to put on young people right now. And I've spoke about this on previous interviews that I've done where even the little things, so for me, I am, you know, me and you are both, by the sounds of it, 19.5 out of 10 extroverts. And when I'm yes, in the pub, yes. you know, I'm with my mates, but I enjoy going to my local because I can see a group of mates that I haven't seen for a while, go over and chat with them for a bit, then come back to my mates. And then, you know, you, you bounce yeah. off people and you do that. I've had to kind of almost like train myself to be like, oh, I can do that again soon. But you almost like, oh, because it's been a one-way system in these pubs and it's, you know, stick to your yeah, group, yeah. It, it's actually not conducive to extroverts at all. Yeah, exactly, mate. Because This is exactly it because you got, you know, we've been encouraged to go back into this world of socialising, but there's this real barrier and friction towards the actual true essence of socialising because you go into a pub, okay, are you with your group of six? You want to get a drink? Okay, uh, download this application, scan this QR code, um, <laughs> confirm your email address, and then go into the online menu, then enter your car details, <laughs> then you can have a pint within your group of six. It's like, my God, just let me fucking live, man. This is the thing people are like, oh, it's so great to be back to normal. I'm like, this is not normal. How many bloody steps have you gone through to get a pint, man? Like, I miss the days of, I'm sure we'll get back to it, but like, just being with, my God, pfft, eight people, 10 people, however many people you bloody want. They're like, oh, should we go into that bar there? Oh yeah, and you just waltz in there, you lean on the bar, you kind of hold your note out a bit and you're like, I'm gonna get some drinks, all right. And you walk around and you don't have to wear your mask to the toilet. So yeah, a lot of people, I've heard so many people like, oh, it's so nice to be back to normal. I'm like, this is not normal. Yeah, it's this still not, not what normal. Socialize. It's still not it's normal not. yet. It's getting there, but like, to be honest with you, I really have just found it, it maybe sounds petty of me, but is it is it petty like i just want to enjoy the spontaneity of the world and just you know walk around and conglomerate and indulge in the company of as many people as possible in a free manner rather than i don't know it seems weird when you okay so i'm sure you've been into a bar you've got all of these restrictions but you look around and it's absolutely ramo still i'm like okay yes covid restrictions and that but my god if covid is in here it is in here right I do not know how much difference, like, you know, 200 people sat at different tables is going to make. I'm pretty sure the germs are still in the air. I'm not questioning it. I know they had to have some sort of way of bringing it out, but it just seems weird seeing everywhere so busy, but it's so restricted, but it feels as busy as it used to be. It's, mm. I don't know, for me, it's kind of a conflicting atmosphere for me. Yeah, there's this weird dichotomy, I think, between wanting to do the normal things, like going to the gym, which I'm thankfully allowed to do now, kind of see yeah. mates within reason and within the restrictions, but there's also this very real pressure, like you say, to get involved in this, or when we are in a period of post-lockdown, but living with COVID kind of permanently, but obviously with the vaccines that hopefully have the efficacy of this age of supposed hedonism that's going to yes. happen. And, and I sort of just got, and I, you know, it's, a, it's a very maudlin response I give to people. It's like, my life wasn't like that before this. Why is it going to be like this in two months time? It's only going to be yeah. like that for a certain select group of beautiful people, surely. Yeah, oh, 100%, man. I suppose, like, like you say, with this pressure for living where obviously where we have had the stark contrast of being completely isolated, we are really glorifying this idea that it's just going to be partying 24 seven when it's over. But realistically, I'm sure I speak for many people. I'm a different person than I was at the start of the pandemic. I was 24 at the start of the pandemic. I'm 26 now. That's a fifth of my 20s spent in a pandemic. I can't say I'm the same person I was when I entered this pandemic. I've come out and I'm like, yeah, I want to party and 
have a bit of fun but my career has fallen massively behind and i've actually still got a lot of priorities that evolve around myself that don't involve partying like it's very easy to look at the great gatsby and all these things and glorify this idea of the roaring 20s and don't get me wrong i think there will be a hunger for hedonism hedonism however you pronounce it but at the same time a lot of people are going to be wanting to pick up the pieces for like their career and like catching up with many other factors of their life other mm. than partying you know i've gone out and i've had some fun and i've partied but i'm not like i don't feel like feel the urge to drink seven days a week and just be a complete loose cannon <laughs> you no. know yeah i also feel like going out now i almost feel like you're going out but i don't feel like the wrecked hangover days are worth it because you're not having that experience of okay that night out was amazing and it's worth me being completely out of the game for the next day because like you're sitting on your table 100%. with your mates you're not chatting to girls or you're not gonna go into like having this other experience or you're not having a big night out you're just kind of going with your mates you're sitting in a table you're staying with each other you're not meeting anyone new as well which is really yeah, bad exactly. for extroverts so yeah 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 Hun mate 100 this is so correct yeah when you when you find yourself on these nights out there's not really the anchor to coax you into a crazy night out you know there's no like oh yeah this place is open to 6 a.m dude oh my god yeah this is like this is band playing over the road it's gonna be totally lit dude like you say you're indulging in recreation within restrictions which seems like a completely paradoxical idea in itself <laughs> the idea of recreation and restriction which are two completely contrasting words in themselves so you're not exactly gonna get absolutely off your nut when again i go back to my point scanning the qr code downloading the app doing we can't eat else to get a, get a drink i'm like that doesn't exactly give me the momentum to go absolutely nuts and you know what man like i'm sure i speak for both of us i've really had a lot of big nights out i've had a lot of good times like i don't feel like i need to base my post-covid life on getting absolutely nutted anymore again going back to the whole music thing i've got a lot of music things i want to achieve i want to you know get back rehearsing get back ready for gigging start to get records out and i'm sure a lot of people who obviously are excited about the idea of partying loads and loads will obviously have other priorities because you know life's all about balance you can't just essentially bury your head in the sand 24 7 we've been stuck buried in the sand against our will because of covid and we can't just well for me personally i don't feel like i just want to like go back to being like a uni loose cannon like i used to be just getting absolutely wrecked all the time i want to yeah we've grown up during this period this is exactly it yeah and no, i literally just said that like i'm 26 now like i'm sure speak for yourself well i'm 27 I so. yeah exactly i conveniently had two birthdays like april to april which was all COVID, same so april to april yeah i was the same April yeah, 7th. It, yeah. Exa <laughs> exactly which you know which makes it it's still the same frame of time but it just makes me feel like i've got a lot older you know where some people might not have even might have just skimmed one birthday and it might not seem bad but for me hitting two age checkpoints really made me think okay i really need to get on my music career i've forcibly had 18 months of my music career taken away from me so i really want to get my head down and spend a lot of my time getting on that don't get me wrong i love a drink i love unwinding and chilling with my mates but yeah i don't think within the current format of society there is the real potential for that level of hedonism that they had in the 20s like these kind of sneaky prohibition bars i'm sure there's going to be cool stuff going on but you know i think a lot of people are going to be playing catch up really because careers have dwindled in this time and it's just been odd and do you know what though we'll have a pint and we'll let this all blow over <laughs> We've come to the final topic of conversation on Behind the Mic, Pete, and it's one I try and have with every single guest, which is a general natter and chat about our mental health. It's a mix of quick fires, mix of deep questions. So first off, 
How do you say your mental health is at the moment, mate? Do you know what? I'd say it's um, better than it's been in a long time, actually. Yeah, having the opportunity to start rehearsing again and putting out records and uh, seeing my friends again. And, well, I've met, I've met a lovely lady recently. I've, um, you know, romantically in a good place, um, socially in a good place, creatively in a good place. So it's a lot better than it's been in a long time, I have to say. But not even six months ago, it was probably at rock bottom. So it's um, quite nice to be seeing the light at the end of the tunnel. Mm. What age do you think you were, mate, when you first became self-aware of your mental health and realised that the feelings you were having weren't physical, although they could, in your case, have physical symptoms too, but they were actually in your mind and a product of your mental health? I would say around the age of 23 when I had, well, we roughly alluded to it earlier, the kind of romantic troubles I mm -hmm. had in my early 20s. Essentially, coming out the other side of that, I realized, okay, this is what mental, this is what anxiety is, this is what depression is, and it's really weird being confronted with that for the first time in your life due to a third party, not even due to myself. I wasn't just floating about by myself, and then all of a sudden I became anxious. My foundation as a human being is a very, I'm a very easygoing, very happy guy. So it's interesting how other people can impact your mental health, right? Mm. So, you know, this kind of alludes to the idea that surround yourself with good people because they have a massive impact on you as a person so maybe i was just making the right choices up until that point <laughs> surrounding myself surrounding myself with great people and i still do like all my, my my friends and my current partner and everything everything around me family they're all so all the people around me right now are just great for me whereas you can slip once you can meet one person who can bring you down like it's it's great you've got to just be very mindful of who you surround yourself with mm. i think good to hear yeah. mate and do you want to tell me about the first conversation you had with someone about your mental health? Who was it with? What did you say? And how did you feel afterwards? Did it feel like a big moment or weight had been lifted off your shoulders? Or did it actually feel like something quite normal and insignificant and therefore normalized? I would say it didn't feel like some grandiose kind of event of some sorts. It, it kind of just felt like an insignificant thing in the sense that when I was starting to go through these bouts of low self-esteem and anxiety, I would just, you know, initially confront my mother. She's very much there for me, <laughs> kind of speak, speak to my friends as well. And it was more just casually opening up. It wasn't like, guys, I had this big thing to announce. I'm going for anxiety. It was more like, oh man, I'm feeling kind of crap about this, you know, and just having open, starting to have open conversations. And I think that was just the start of a journey to being open about how I felt and just, kind of confronting things as they came my way as opposed to like it being a huge event that I announced. Mental health is a journey. It's not necessarily something you take antibiotics for two weeks and you're fine, right? So it feels like there's a bit, there's a sense of longevity to dealing with an anxiety issue, right? So it felt more like a trickling, insignificant thing for me mm. that was just catalyzed the string of conversations and like catalyzed me trying to cope with it in multiple ways, essentially. When it comes to your triggers, mate, obviously you've spoken about health anxiety, but what would you say your triggers are that you find in life? Is it things, for example, people might say to you? Is it a sound? Is it a sensation? Is it being in a particular social environment? Is it lo a location? Or have you not figured all of them out yet? Triggers. That's a tough one. For me, it's more physical because a lot of my anxiety manifests physically, like with the jaw tension and the headaches and stuff that a lot of people will convert anxiety in, in different physical ways as you know so for me if i start i've had a day where i'm feeling super tight feeling super tense got like a headache and stuff that would actually spill into me feeling really anxious that day because yeah it just kind of brings back all of them physical sensations that make me feel 
like something's wrong. And then that starts to spill into my self-esteem. I start to look in the mirror and start to question how I look. I'm like, oh, does my face look tired? Oh my God. And that spills into this, into that kind of whirlwind. Uh, it's not necessarily like any verbal triggers per se, because like I've said, I'm surrounded by pretty upbeat, positive people. The people around me aren't just like a group of lads who just rip each other. It's just like, it's like a really positive environment being in different musical groups. So socially, I've got nothing really that triggers me. If anything, I feel less anxious when I'm with people. I talk a lot on this podcast, Pete, about two ideas, toxic masculinity and positive masculinity. Now, hopefully in a few ah. more years, toxic masculinity will be in a very small minority and it hopefully won't exist oh, yeah. although that's a that's an optimistic viewpoint and then i also talk about positive masculinity which some guests have ascribed it to self-confidence self-awareness empathy supporting other men in their life what would you define as toxic masculinity and what would you define as positive masculinity okay that's a very interesting question well toxic masculinity is something that we're all immensely aware of obviously it's this whole immensely hyped up testosterone state of mind lack of consideration for women being incredibly selfish and brash and jocular in your way of life and being inconsiderate to other people's emotions and essentially just being one big bull sack <laughs> you know what I mean? one floating bull sack roaming the earth just being a very indigestible human being being very insecure but, um, as well yeah yeah essentially manifesting your insecurities upon other people and just you know, you've, you've always got to question them sort of lads who are just roaming around with that sort of masculine energy. It's like, who is the real man behind that? Who really lies beneath that surface? Because I guarantee that person goes home, they don't look in the mirror and think in that sort of way. Like, yeah, it's all essentially a social facade. You know, it's something, an expectation that we feel as men we're meant to live up to, that we're meant to be this hyper version of the man, mm. you know, and this is rooted in kind of traditional ideas of what a man is. Whereas I think nowadays, spinning into my answer for the next question, nowadays I think that the idea of masculinity has become a lot more fluid. The fact that positive masculinity, I would say, is the idea that men should embrace femininity and openness and compassion and that, that these qualities do actually make up a real solid bloke, you know? Mm. Whereas a lot of blokes are stuck in the idea that being a man is essentially being like i say well to put it in an odd way being this walking ball sack with no consideration and just being essentially an arsehole really whereas i think what makes up a true man is being a compassionate kind caring open person who is willing to be emotional and admit their flaws and confront their flaws and look out for their friends and give their friends platforms to open up and essentially feel like they're not isolated because i feel like a lot of groups of blokes can bottle up a lot of their emotions and that can really manifest in really toxic ways which essentially is toxic masculinities but within my group of friends luckily you know someone's got an issue someone's feeling insecure someone's low in self-esteem there is an atmosphere that allows people to be open about that and i think that's incredible for blokes to be open about their emotion because inherently male mental health is something that is only really recently been kind of accepted mm. uh, starting to become accepted because there's a lot of awareness campaigns that men need to open up about their mental health like most suicides are blokes and stuff because men are meant to have these stiff upper lips and they're meant to be these rigid characters that have no emotions which is absolutely ridiculous because we are human beings in a crazy world and life's going to have its conflicts and its strange turning points and as men we need to open up to each other and realize that it's not just all 
lads, 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 right? Mm. <laughs> like we come on, be a bit sensitive. Or vulnerable. just one lad, I, not all the four lads afterwards. <laughs> yeah, exactly, man. But yeah, I suppose positive masculinity is indulging in vulnerability as a man, which is something which is not a traditional idea of being a man. Mm. And I always say vulnerability is a strength, not a weakness, which I think that sometimes Absolutely. the media conversation misses a bit. They seem to frame like men opening up as weakness and then like, oh, weakness is a good thing. I'm like, well, weakness, no, weakness is self-pity or weakness is shaming others. That's weakness for me. Vulnerability is yeah. a strength. Mate, absolutely. Vulnerability, I think, is one of the hardest things to do. To be vulnerable is, it takes a lot of conscious energy to be, okay, I'm going to be vulnerable about something that's really personal to me. That requires an incredible amount of strength. And especially conflicting the idea that vulnerability is seen as a weakness, that's strength in itself to actually conflict that preconceived notion that vulnerability is weak and actually going against that and being the vulnerable person and you're starting to see a lot more men be open now which i think is great whereas women naturally are just so compassionate in their nature and are so much more open in their sense of conversation than have been in years past so i think we need to embrace this kind of fluidity between femininity and masculinity to essentially create a more positive version of our own gender really mm. And as a final question, Pete, it's a broad one as well. What more do you think we have to do to ensure men from all backgrounds feel comfortable and safe in opening up about their mental health issues or just their general mental health if they want to do it? Well, I feel like we need to create a platform on social media and in real life that encourages men to admit that weakness is a natural thing, to break this facade that men have to be these perfect pure masculine things essentially so we, we just need to really manifest this dialect that it's okay to be vulnerable and exposed as a man and i think that is starting to happen on social media in terms of awareness towards mental health for both genders and we also need to create that platform within our own personal social circles and whatnot just normalize the idea that it's okay to not be okay because i definitely being a, a lad from essex have been susceptible to this idea that if i'm feeling emotional or if i'm feeling weak that that's not okay i've definitely felt that i'm like why am i feeling like this why am i feeling weak why am i feeling low about myself and i didn't feel like i could really be true to myself and as soon as i started to accept that and started to have interesting open conversations about it that's when i actually started to get over them hurdles and we need to create that sort of atmosphere for all blokes in real life and on social media pete from beach of a tiger thank you so much for coming on my behind the mic series mate my absolute pleasure mate it's been a fantastic chat thanks for letting me waffle to my heart's content i think that's all we've got time for on this episode of behind the mic i want to say a big thank you to pete from beach for tiger for being my special guest on this episode and for letting me go behind the mic with him that single we discussed called days will play us out and i'll put all of beach for tiger and pete's own production work streaming and social media links in the show notes as always thanks to all the vendors who've tuned in i'll sign us off by saying if you like what you've heard Share it on social media, tell your friends, tell your work colleagues, tell your family about it, spread the word about Vent. If you're feeling generous and want to support us more, write us a review or give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. That will really help us out with those precious algorithms. Or you can support us more at Patreon through www.patreon.com slash venthelpuk. Or if you want to make a one-off donation, you can visit our GoFundMe page. That's in the link tree on all our channels. Stay tuned for the next episode of Behind the Mic. And remember, it's always okay to vent.